Regeneration Topic, a podcast by the Osteology Foundation. Good afternoon, Isvan. It is a real pleasure to have you here for this uh, another Osteology Foundation initiative. And I am uh, very happy to be here with you today. We've known each other for some years now, so you're a colleague and a friend. So for me, it's a great honor to be here to organize this, uh, this interview. Thank you for, for accepting and being here with us. Well, thank you so much, Isabella, for, for you know, doing this. I really appreciate it. And I, uh, yes, as you said, we, we, are, we know each other for a long time. And uh, <laughs> actually, uh, you know, a little bit the topic, that's how we met, basically, yes. through augmentation. So. Yes, definitely. And um, today we are uh, interested in getting into the details of your famous paper that was published in the um, International Journal of Oral and Maxillofacial Implants back in 2009, believe it or not, how time flies. And uh, the title is Vertical Ridge Augmentation Using Guided Bone Regeneration in Three Clinical Scenarios prior to implant placement, a retrospective study of the 35 patients, 12 to 72 months after loading. So I have quite a few questions here because first of all, how did you, how did you get to write this manuscript and uh, what, is the, what is the idea behind it? I'm always curious about real life, about what happens be- behind the scenes to the superstars like you. So basically <clears throat> when I was a student, at Loma Linda, um, you know, they basically allowed me to do this. And the program director, Jaime Lozada, told me that, look, I mean, this is going really well, and I would like you to, to publish once, you know, these, these cases in the JOMI. Because for us, you know, in the United States at that time, the JOMI was like, it was the clinical oral implant research and the JOMI, but we were more like JOMI, like the US, you know, universities. And, um, but then I forgot about it. And then, um, I was um, uh, invited by uh, my, my mentor and basically teacher at, at Fogadi Bone Generation, Sasha Jovanovic, to give a, like a little, uh, like, a, like a seminar presentation uh, in one of his uh, symposium in Amsterdam. And it was like a Sunday morning who could ever, you know, wake up early and like previous students in his class, from his classes, you know, all over the world. And, he had, and you know, whoever can, you know, present something, please present. And he said, well, Ishtan, can you do a presentation? I said, yeah, okay, I do a presentation. So I did a presentation and then he was like, wow, this was really good. I mean, it's like, okay, so how many have you done? So I said, how many? I said, look, I mean, why don't you, I mean, you should publish this. And then, you know, I was like, so both of my teachers were kind of like pushing me, but honestly, I had no idea how to write a paper. <laughs> and we can talk about that. <laughs> Definitely, because we, we've all we've all been there. You you have uh, you obviously have a great idea, but uh, but you needed then to put everything on paper. But as you said, your mentors uh, uh, Sasha Jovanovic and uh, and Lozada were there probably to to back you up on this. So basically, um, you know, I didn't show them anything until you know it was. I thought it was like done, but it took like years and years of of writing because in two thousand four. I already, uh, I was invited to the EAO in Paris and basically I presented, you know, not like, it was not that long term yet, but I presented the cases. And, um, and for that meeting, I already collected some data. 
And, but, um, but even, you know, then I started to, to really write. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it took a long time. But speaking, speaking of this, the, what is the reason, I mean, this paper focuses on the long-term data because, because, so you decided to collate all your data because there was a lack in the scientific literature about long-term of the vertical ridge augmentation uh, cases, right? Because it was all still very, new very that's a very interesting story actually but i would like to begin that if you if you if you look into the uh, 2019 publication of the effectiveness on vertical ridge augmentation yes. journal clinical periodontology you see that there is only 11 papers that reported on vertical augmentation for at least one year i know yes yeah. so there's not a lot but the the story was that i went to um to uh, study at UCLA as an intern preceptor. And um, that was a, like a seminar and Dr. Bumer, who was one of the professors gave a presentation. And he said, well, vertical augmentation doesn't work. <laughs> and at that time, because there was a lot of uh, resorption and I, I was like, well, you know, I raised my head and, and you know, everybody was shocked by what do you want? And I said, well, you know, there is this red study. <laughs> And I started to talk about like a rat study when they put like a Teflon cap on the rat and that the bone was growing in there. And, and so the bone can grow. And he said, oh, that's, you know, it's really good that you know the study, but you know, the human is a different species. So anyway, then Dr. Jovanovic introduced me to Gary Bone Regeneration. He was already doing vertical augmentation. And, you know, I completely believed in it and believed him. And, and, he, and, and so when I, when I started, but I was really careful because like, I, all I heard that, you know, this thing is like, it's very technique sensitive, but even if it works, it's going to disappear. So I said, well, that, that would be really bad. <laughs> and then, you know, I started to see at, at Loma Linda that, look, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it looks like normal bones. So why would that disappear? But, but in the, at the same time, I, I started, I really wanted to focus on, you know, what happens yeah. after. With the bone. And <laughs> Professor Simeon was also yes. telling me, you know, in 2003, when, when he was the, uh, the, I think, the president of the EAO, and there was a, a meeting in Vienna, and he was like telling me, look, I mean, Istvan, uh, we need more publications. You have all these cases, yeah. you, you should publish. Yes, because in a way, you came right after Massimo Simeon and, and uh, Sasha Jovanovic, and they, they, they were almost the forefront. And then immediately you came with so many data, so many clinical cases treated. So they opened the door, but you definitely opened the gate, <laughs> I would like to say. Yeah. And well, if you think about it, speaking of, um, of Massimo Simeon's paper, um, it was 27 years ago, Massimo Simeon published the, the gosh, 27 years, um, the first human histologic paper about vertical ridge augmentation. This paper that we're talking about um, is 21 years later. Um, so now, after almost 30 years of vertical ridge augmentation, tell me, Istvan, is it, what has changed? What, what are the uh, paradigm shifts that we have? What, do we, what are we doing completely differently? Or what are we doing which is similar or identical to 30 years ago? So I think, you know, the, the, I mean, the basic principles that what I learned from Sasha Jovanovic, and I think... Dr. Simeon, Professor Simeon, and Dr. Jovanovic, and Dr. Tinti, they were like together developing this technique, you know, in the early 90s, mid 90s. And so I was really fortunate that when I went to UCLA, I already 
learned from him, you know, the, the most important guidelines. And I think the most important guidelines are still the same, which is like how to prepare a patient. Like the patient has to be absolutely clean and things like that, because, you know, it's a particulated bone graft. That membrane was an older membrane, even more sensitive. And also the flap designs, you know, this, this they call it the remote flap or safety flap. Uh, the flap design that is large, is large enough and is vascularized enough to, to be able that, that is going to accept a, um, a different dimension of the bone. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, those principles are still the same. However, uh, uh, other aspects of the surgical technique really improved a lot. For example, I think it's less invasive, even though you do the same flap, but the way you manage the flap and the way you advance the flap is much less invasive. And the way you release it, because you've published you release, very yeah. clearly before, how, to, how, to publish, how, to, how to publish, how to release. The yeah, it was, before it was like, I call it the samurai technique. You took a blade, then it, another blade, another blade, and it was like the patient was this, you know, swollen and, yeah. and, and things. There was a hematoma, but it, it, was, it was working, but it was much more invasive. So that's number one. Number two, a very, uh, you know, I, I had, um, I have a MacBook Pro, which is silver. And I had my first MacBook Pro in 2006, I believe it was also silver, almost looking the same, but a completely different computer. So I think that's a little bit similar to uh, what has changed. Vertical augmentation changed tremendously, even though we look at the membrane and it looks very similar than, than before, but it's mm -hmm. very, very different now. Yeah, so, so summarizing, we can say the biological principles are identical. For example, we can emphasize the fact that the flaps have to remain closed and they had to remain closed 30 years ago and they have to remain closed now to achieve success. And I think this is important, Islam, to, to highlight and I would like your opinion on this because there are a lot of cases where you see also these dense membranes that, uh, and I will get back to the, to, to the question about the membranes, but these dense membranes that are purposely left exposed for some sort of GBR, perhaps not the vertical cases, uh, smaller cases, but what, what is your opinion? Why, why is there uh, papers describing, mainly case series, describing uh, the, the, the use of these membranes and leaving them exposed purposely to then remove the membrane? What do you think about this? So I think, you know, this originally, when they, when they switched from the, from the EPTFE to the dense PTFE, they started to use it for a lot of extraction sockets. And, you know, extraction sockets, something like this easily healing. And so they said, okay, it's so dense, the bacteria will not penetrate, let's leave it open. And it worked. And then some clinicians said, well, look, why don't we leave it open for, for a small bone graft? Or when they had an exposure, they were like, okay, we have an exposure, it's not as bad as, as the previous membranes. And for example, the one doctor, Dr. Funakoshi in Japan, who's a, who's a periodontist, a very nice man. And he, you know, he is treating a lot of elderly patients with moderate defects. And for those patients, he's using this, this dense PTFE memories. He, he, he keeps like a small exposure, so he's not really advancing them. And I've seen plenty of cases from him getting like a decent result, you know, but again, it's not a vertical defect, not a big defect, but uh, you could not do that with a with a with a with a gore membrane. Before. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. So it goes back to indication as always. And speaking about the membranes, what is the major advantage of the new generation PTFE membranes? So the denser, because we have dense and expanded, but denser compared to the old gore membranes, which was expanded PTFE, which we knew was were a bit of a disaster when they became exposed. 
So I think there is, <clears throat> I would say 90% advantage and 10% disadvantage, okay? So um, it's, it's more advantageous because again, uh, it's very easy to wash it off, for example. So worst case scenario, there's, let's say you put something which is like a little piece of plaque, you would, you would be able to wash it off. I, you should not do surgery with plaque in the mouth, but I'm just telling you, it was a gore membrane. Anything got on, on the top, even during the surgery, it got stick in there and that was it. That was a lot of, that's why there was a lot of infections because patients were not perfectly prepared. There was plaque around the, the tongue, the neighboring teeth, and then the, the, the membrane got, you know, a little bit of a touch and that's it. it. You couldn't wash it off. From these membranes, you can wash off a lot of things. So that's number one. Number two, it is so dense that the bacteria will not able to penetrate. So when there is an exposure, then uh, it's a race between bacterial penetration and, and bone maturation, and usually the membrane wins. <laughs> and so, um, and and what we are, what what people are experiencing with these membranes is that the soft tissue grows underneath in case of in case of an exposure, and then they get like a decent result. There is also publications on that. And even histological results that, you know, large exposures um, and you get some bone. And before that was not the, the case, yeah. but that's the advantage. Okay, 90%. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the 10%. <laughs> it is more plastic. These are more plastic. The gore was like velvet. I loved it. Okay, it was easy to adapt. It was very good to work with it. Why? Because it was expanded and it was like, a, it, it was like velvet. This one is more plastic. And because originally they made this for 250 microns. Okay, the 250 microns is so sharp that if you, if you don't adapt it and it's somewhere in the thin phenotype, then this sharpness sometimes caused a long-term exposure. Okay, like after two months or three months, but the gore never did that. And so they, then they came up with a 150 micron and now they have a 200 micron, which is much softer. Anything is much softer than the 250. I think the 250 will be discontinued. So it's still improving. Yeah, so, so I would say so, that's the disadvantage. And so, there's one more. I think the, uh, Dr. Carring was one of the, the, the inventors or who suggested Gore to expand it also because he thought that there's some communication with the soft tissue cells might be uh, important and, and just to filter out the fibroblasts. So there was a little bit of a communication. This one, is, there was no communication with this, with these yes. numbers. No, 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 I fully agree. So let's keep carry on talking about membranes, but specifically I was looking and going through the 2009 paper, which is, which is uh, uh, what we are looking at for this interview. And in this paper back in 2009, when you removed the PTFE membrane after six to nine months, you positioned your implant and then you positioned a collagen barrier membrane on top. Is there something a, what, the, what is the rationale? Because you explained in the paper that the rationale was to avoid the supercrestal bone remodeling. So do you still do this? Is this rationale still valid? What is your protocol when finally this PTFE membrane is out of the way, you have your beautiful bone and you put your implants in? Okay, so great question. Well, that was Sasha's idea. So he was doing it in his cases. And I, I, I thought it would make it make sense because, you know, I remember that in the 90s, we believed that the barrier, 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 protect, 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 okay? So when we removed the memory, we were like, oh my God, we removed, you know, the, the mommy was just like letting the baby go. And so we, we wanted to still put like a little something to protect, you know, these bones. And so I, I, I kept doing it, but then I stopped because I felt that, you know, it doesn't really make um, that much of a sense. However, 
what I'm doing today, let's say I remove it and bone is perfect. I'm putting the implants. That's it. I'm not putting anything on unless um, I feel that, you know, it's in an area where you cannot, you can have like zero bone loss or the bone is not absolutely perfect or you want to make it more wide. And then we, if I do a collagen membrane, I do a mini bone graft on the top. We call it the mini sausage. Okay. We published that actually in, I think in 2015 mm -hmm. and, um, and if you look into this paper, there is some bone remodeling, right? Like a one and a half millimeter or something like that. If with that paper, you see a few cases, but that's what we see. You almost have zero. Okay, because... I was under, that's why I knew about this paper, but I was under the impression that you did it in all cases, a little mini sausage on top of your baby. In that, in that publication, yes, because that's most, they, they were, we were filtering out the anterior maxillary cases when we did it all, because we said, okay, we don't want to have one and a half millimeter of bone loss, nothing. So yeah. let's try to do that. And you know, what happens in your daily clinical practice in all I the do, areas? I do the anterior maxilla, I do a lot of mini sausage. Posteriors, I'm not really doing it, but I try to place the implants slightly deeper. Yes, slightly deeper. So, I call it GBR, guided bone remodeling. <laughs> <laughs> Makes total sense. So we've we've touched the membrane topic. Um, let's now touch the graft or the or the biomaterials or the bone substitute. I would like to say, thirty years ago, um, we all started with started with a blood clot only, then uh, it was uh, the bone chips, autogenous bone chips, and then slowly we have decreased the percentage of, of autogenous bone chips and increased the percentage of xenograft under these membranes or uh, bone substitute material. Where are we going to be? Where are we now with the 50-50 autogenous and bone substitute? And where will we be, do you think, in 10 years? Are we going to let go of the autogenous bone or shall we still use it? <coughs> so that's a great questions. Well, yes, <laughs> blood, clot, blood clot was working um, really well. And that was actually in 1994 uh, or 95, Dr. Jovanovic published an animal study. Yeah. Where he was also using the blood clot and it was like had some cases which was great, which were great. Some of them were not. And then already in the discussion section, they were like, okay, like lamenting on maybe to put a graft in there would more secure the blood clot. So that was the original idea. Then, the auto then it was all autogenous. And I was like completely into only autogenous bones. So it took a lot of chin grafts, a lot of ramuses, like I was trephining everywhere. And um, that was up to... In 2003, actually, we had at, at, the, at the EAO in Vienna. After the EAO, the Professor Simeon, Dr. Jovanovic, they also all came to Budapest. We had a weekend here. And was, I was talking to actually more like Massimo a lot. And he was like saying that, look, I started to use this biomaterial, which I, of course, we used it. I mean, we used the anorganic bovine bone mineral all over the place, you know, in the sinuses. And I said, look, I mean, even the vertical augmentation, you know, I'm using, I started to use it. I was like, and and him, I really trusted him because like also whenever he's, he, he told me something, you know, you can, you know, that, that, that's, he means it. So I, I know him very well. I was lucky enough yeah, to, to, to follow him. <laughs> and so that, that, and, and then when he published the, uh, and I think he published it with you, the 50, 50 mixture. Yes. Okay. And, and that makes a lot of sense. So, but I was really careful. So I went to, down to 50, 50, I did one or two, three cases when I did less than 50 and it didn't, and I had more bone loss than before. So I think the 50, then it made sense 
And what is very interesting with with the with the with the um, with the biomaterial, it was two things. Number one, I had to take much less bone. Of course. Mm. Number two, you know, like the, I see that in in um, uh, there's a lot of people are using still only autogenous bone. Okay, but what I see in my case is only autogenous bone. The many of them are doing very good, but when you take a CT scan, you know, there's a lot of shrinkage buccolingual. Mm-hmm. It looks like that the autogenous bone goes back to really to the original bone housing, which for many patients were very thin. I mean, in, imagine a thin phenotype patient who had like even a mandible, you know, sometimes there are big recessions, there's no bone around the roots. So that was already a thin patient. And if you don't do a bone graft, then it goes back to that. That's not enough for an implant. Of now, when I'm taking a CT scan for a, for a composite bone graft, I mean, this bone is like the implant is suffocating, you know, and, and there's so much bone that it doesn't want to disappear. So I think there's, it, it's really advantageous. <laughs> I, 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 can, I can only agree fully with you, but um, how do you reply to the clinicians who are very, very, very strong about 100%? It's almost like a political party. I'm for the 100% autogenous bone. Yes, but usually, usually that, that, that is also related to techniques. Okay, that they're, they're really attached to a technique, which is very technique sensitive. Very. And sometimes it's, it's then, then you want to teach that, you know, and things like that. So I, I think currently you, 99.9% of the cases, almost 100% of the cases, you don't need fully autogenous bone. And the other question you said, what you asked me, okay, where, where is this going to take in 10 years? Now, well, that's a very good, very good question. And, and um, we want to answer that too. And so, what can happen is that you, you, you print out something and you have some cells maybe, but I think, you know, I know that they exist, but I think it's not the reality yet. Not yet. It's not, it's not yet. And 10 years is not a lot. No. Now we, know. <laughs> uh, we also do some preclinical research and we started to do research on established growth factors, such as bone morphogenic protein, but in a microdose. Yeah. So surprisingly, because the idea was that the, these materials these growth factors are used in too big of a, a dose yes. and, and they placed into the wrong place. So we started to have different um, you know, groups yeah. and place this micro dose alone or just a graph material, like a biomaterial only, or in the middle of the bone graph, like mix it in or just layering it, we call it a lasagna. Okay, and it looks like lasagna is the best. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so the pro- potentially microdoses of, of growth factors in countries where it may be able to use it and it doesn't cause you so much swelling, it's not so expensive anymore. That might be one way because That's what we have seen, you know, in the preclinical research that in eight weeks, in eight weeks with like less than 100 microns of bone morphogenic protein and 100% xenogenic bone graft, so no autogenous bone, we were able to regenerate a mandible. Mm. almost completely well yes i mean if you think what we want we did with uh, massimo simeon and then ron nevin yeah. the growth factors, the concept is the same with a, with a recombinant human pdgf the amount we created a mountain exactly so the the i think that um, is certainly and also i was also thinking about uh controlled release of these growth factors that's another key factor because we knew that we know that everything is released at once whereas if we can dilute over time so so there's a lot of research still and uh, which which clearly fascinates let's go back to the paper 
And in the study, you describe the implants that you positioned once the vertical augmentation was, um, was performed. Um, clearly being in 2009, you had a selection of implant surfaces that were perhaps similar or different than, than today's. In the paper, specifically, you're talking about analyzed surfaces or acid-edged surfaces. Um, do you think the surface of an implant, without mentioning you know, commercial names, but do you think that the surfaces of the implants have an impact on the long-term outcome of vertical ridge augmentation? Does it make any difference? Well, it's a very, very good question. Well, and it's, it's maybe I cannot answer that question, but uh, you know, my background was machined implants, machine surface implants, especially coming from UC, when I when, went from UCLA. And then um, at Loma Linda, we were all rough. And the smoothest surface was the acid edged, okay, that I could use. So as a resident, you know, they, they, they would never say no, like, don't order it. But, you know, it was more like made sense. They make sense to, to use a little bit more rough. Those Acid-edged implants were not very rough. And um, some of those cases now very, very old and they do very well. Then we started to use a little bit, you know, the anodized surface. Uh, and uh, the question is what for long-term, okay? So Massimo Simeon published a paper 15 years of follow-up on machined implants, okay? And very, very good results. The first year of bone remodeling in that paper, I think it was about two millimeters, 2.2. So maybe some of them were like simultaneous or whatever, but you know, maybe in the crestal level, a machined implant will let maybe a li little bit more bone go, like more smooth implant, but then it will be more easy to maintain. Mm. So for me, I like to use a texture surface implant, but for, for example, the posterior area, I like to use with a machine color. Yeah, makes sense. And yeah, and that I think makes a big difference. It'll, um... I would be very interested, and I, and I think neither of us have an answer to this, but, but um, perhaps I'm, I'm wrong and you do have an answer. Now, let's say that you have performed an amazing vertical augmentation, you put your implants um, nowadays, and uh, six years down the line, they start showing signs of parenchymatitis. Do you think the GBR bone, the vertically augmented bone, which is a GBR bone with a composite, um, of 50-50, as we said before. Do you think it will react differently than native bone? So, or do you think periplantitis would, uh, would, uh, would increase uh, its uh, rapidity, it's, it's, uh, it would become faster, the destruction or not? Well, thank you so much. This is also a very good question. So in my clinical practice, you know, I have uh, implants placed, you know, in the last 20 years, in a, a lot of them in native bone, a lot of them in regenerated bone, vertically regenerated bone. And I think I have less, much less, I see less percentage in uh, perimplantitis in regenerated bone. <laughs> I think with regenerated bone, you can prevent bi a biological complication when. So for example, let me give you one example. And here mandibular case came, they, it was, she was referred here, Okay, when implants are placed into moderately narrow bones. So an implant is placed like a four millimeter implant in six millimeter width of bone. So there's one millimeter on the buckle, one millimeter on the, on, on the lingual. The, that bone has, is, has a big chance to resorb. Yes. You place three implants like that in the posterior mandible, you, put it, you did native bone, 
it's very easy to get a biological complication of those implants because there will be a buccal bone loss, maybe lingual bone loss, rough surface implant, and then that's it. When you regenerate bone, I make sure that I regenerate bone wide enough. Mm -hmm. And when I place an implant, if I don't like it, I do a mini sausage because I want to add more bone. I want to make sure that I have enough on the buccal, enough on the lingual. So, and probably that is the reason why I see less perimplantitis in regenerated bone. When, but when I see, you know, I, I, let's say, open it up and it's very difficult to, to tell mm. that it, it was ever regenerated because it's the same mandible. Okay, I have to look at my loops and in the loops, I see maybe a little bit of a popcorn here inside the bone, a popcorn there. And we, uh, we, we got like an ethical approval when, when we had a patient, when we could, we were taking like a long-term histological, you know, five years, seven years samples. Histologically, you have the host bone and the new bone, zero difference. And I know you know that. And uh, clinical outlook, no difference. I don't think it has any more chance to get perimplantitis, yeah. regenerative bone. But if you make it wide enough and um, you do, the, I think, the hybrid version of implants like this tissue connection implants, you know, in the posterior, you put the machine a little bit in, the bone goes down to the first thread, yeah. that's it. I mean, that's... And in the interior, if you feel that you're, you know, not wide enough, maybe do mini sausage or protect the, the, the bone with a mini sausage. Yeah, I'm not worried about that. In, in this paper that we are discussing, you mentioned that um, after, at the end of the fifth year of loading, I'm reading it, um, minor or equal of two millimeters of crestal bone loss is acceptable. Is this the same criteria that you are following now? This derives from the Albertson criteria. And is it, is it something that you, you use um, now, or are you more strict now, and you do not even allow the two millimeters? So this, you know, there was a lot of thinking about which success criteria should be used. And the, that was basically the Albrechtson's criteria. What was that? One and a half millimeter, I think it was 1.5 millimeter in the first year, and then 0 0.2 annually. Up to five years, yeah. Yeah, but if you calculate that 1.5, one year. 1.7, two years, 1.93 years. Okay, worst case scenario, still successful. Then 2.1, 2.3, okay? Then, you know, we had this um, proceedings of the um, third uh, European um, Federation of Periodontology meeting by Professor Lang, Karing, and Linde. And there was one section on implant, basically reviewed the literature for implant success criteria. And Jan Wenstrom was, Wenstrom and Palmer, wrote the section. And Jan Wenstrom was really one of my favorite, uh, favorite authors. So, and this is also somebody I really trust. And I read, you know, the literature, what, and they came up with this success criteria. And they said, look, if you have less than two millimeters of bone loss for five years, that should be acceptable. But I said, okay, um, let's make the Albrechtson like a 1.5, 0 0.2, but max it out. So not two point, because that would be 2.3, max, cut it at two. Okay. So we wanted to be a little bit more strict. And um, <clears throat> right now, you know, currently the success criteria, I think it's changed because it's more like the crestal bone remodeling should be, you know, almost uh, not zero, but very close to. So I would say anything more than one and a half, you know, it's already should raise your eyebrow. Okay. 
So my answer is that, yeah, I would, I, I don't think that is a perfect success criteria. It's more like you sh we should report more like requestable bony modeling, biological indexes, breathing on probing and probing depth and things like that around the implants, and then you get the whole, the full picture. Thank you, Isman. This is uh, this is fantastic and, and very, uh, very interesting. To conclude, I have a macro question. <laughs> and um, what kind of advice can you give to the younger generation when it comes to vertical ridge augmentation procedures? Let me explain better. Uh, we all know everybody's always uh, talking about how challenging this procedure is. Um, it's in the hands of a uh, few. Um, it has a high percentage of complications. Uh, it's uh, clini clinical um, operators, operator dependent. How would you define someone uh, who has learned? Is it a number of cases per year that you suggest? Is it, uh, you know, clearly the learning curve is, I think, is a learning curve for, for life, even for you. I mean, you, every time and every day you work, uh, I assume you improve yourself even more. What kind of advice can, can, can you give to the younger generation not to scare them to actually uh, be able to achieve excellent results and predictability, which is the most important for our patients. So I think they nobody should start before learning the principles. So that's very important. I felt that when I, I, I basically switched universities. Okay, so I went as an intern at UCLA and I really learned it from Dr. Jovanovic and I felt that I learned it. And then when I went to Loma Linda, I told, you know, Dr. Rosada, he was the program director, I want to do vertical ridge augmentation. And he was eating and the spoon stops in his hands looking at me on a human. I said, yeah. And because that was like, there's no way. But then they started to give me patience. And in this publication, it's included my, including my very first, my first 36 patients are included in these publications. So, so baby Eastman, baby Eastman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, so uh, what was my learning curve? I thought, until 2003 that I will never have a complication. I was like, what complications are they talking about? You, you suture it like this, there's no way it's gonna, you're gonna have an exposure. But then I had an infection, okay? So, but, uh, so basically it was 3% of complications. Now we published the paper this year, still 3% of complications. So there's no way you're gonna get 0% of complications. No. But the, the learning curve can be reduced if you really learn it, okay? from somebody like you who, um, who, uh, who, who knows you know, these very important principles. Mm -hmm. and then you should go home and start doing it. Because for me, it was really good that, that you know, I assisted you know, at UCLA and then two weeks later, I was doing the same thing. So don't forget it. So start to, met, start to do these principles, maybe in smaller cases, a little yes. bit horizontal. You get the feel of the, of, the, of the flaps, the flap management, you know, now match atraumatic, much more atraumatic, you know, to advance the flap, you have the confidence. Then you start to have a confidence to place them, fixate the membranes, and then you get the vertical defects. And, and what I see, you know, I see many uh, doctors who, who, who learned and they do, I mean, really, really very, very good cases. Yes, but if you start to do it that you've never, you never seen it, never, you know, learned it, then, then, then you're going to have a, a, a problem. Yeah, no, I think there must be a humble approach to learning step by step without launching yourself in, uh, in huge cases without knowing the basis, right? We can, we can summarize. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
exactly. So, uh, yeah. I mean, and you, I think it's very good if, you, if you're really interested in this <laughs> because yes. then you're thinking about this all the time. It's, and that uh, helps. it's amazing. <laughs> Well, Isvan, I think we have come to an end. I thank you and uh, I clearly thank the Osteology Foundation for allowing us to be here on, <laughs> on a very interesting topic that we both clearly love very much. And um, I'm sure that we could stay here for hours and hours, but we don't want to take advantage of your time. So we will be looking forward to seeing you lecture all around the world. Thank you for joining us. And, uh, and I have to thank the Osteology Foundation for giving me the opportunity to be here with you today. No, Isabella, I thank you. Thank you very much for doing this. And I really appreciate it. And again, also for the foundation to, to support yes. us for this interview. Okay. Fantastic. Thank right. you very much. See you soon, hopefully in person. <laughs> yeah, take care. Bye. 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 Regeneration Topic, a podcast by the Osteology Foundation.